Jesse Reformation. My name's Jason Rice. I'm the lead pastor at Faith Community CRC in Beaver Dam, Wisconsin. My co-host is Willie Cronkey, and he can't be with us for a few weeks because he's enjoying time with his new bride, but he'll be back. We're just a couple of guys who love the Christian Reformed Church and want to see Reformation happen in our denomination. And we realize that whenever Reformation happens, things are always messy. So we're taking the opportunity to have conversations with pastors throughout the Christian Reformed Church to find out what's going on in our denomination, but also to talk about what Reformation might look like. We are so grateful for all of you who are faithfully listening each week and faithfully encouraging us each week and faithfully sharing this content with the people around you. Keep it up. Keep sharing these episodes. Keep talking about this to people. It is helping spread these conversations throughout the CRC and is helping Reformation come. Don't forget to head on over to YouTube and check us out over there. We're dropping episodes there every week, too. And if you haven't already, take a moment, click subscribe so you don't miss any of our upcoming content. We are dropping episodes every single Monday, rain or shine, no matter what's going on. With all that said, we're going to get to this week's episode, which is part two of our conversation with David Chung. He sat on the steps of the church could not stand up for a while. And then he eventually says, okay, I'm driving to join the picnic. He's going to drive. And then he was advised, no, don't do that. Just get on the bus. We rented a huge bus. right? Don't drive. So he agreed. So he got on the bus. One of our deacons was in charge of this whole thing. I was, I was away in a place where there is limited cell phone access because I was speaking at another retreat. Uh, so. They all went to the picnic place. And then to make the long story short, this gentleman died at the picnic place. Wow. He just collapsed and then that's it. The ambulance came, but the picnic place is like a forest. So the ambulance got lost. And by the time they came, it's just, you know, it's all over. Now, this deacon is not a, he's a rather young Christian. But he's a very committed Christian. Now he's in charge. The man who died is not a Christian. They don't know what's going to happen. And so they sent the news to me. So I cut short my stay. And then I came back. And then that deacon called me at night. He said, Pastor, something happened at the picnic. And I said, yes, I know. You should never give your name, your telephone number your email address, anything about you to that family. They deal with me. I give them my name, give them my telephone number, everything, it's about me. You're done. Go and rest. And he said it repeatedly without stop. Thank you, Pastor. Thank you, Pastor. Thank you, Pastor. Because he was so afraid he's going to go to court. Mm. Yeah. But this is what we do because we're the pastor, right? We don't let our sheep suffer harm. So I said, don't get out there. Your job is the picnic. This is an accident. This is unforeseen. I take everything. It's on me. So So the pastor does that. We need to protect the flock. Like you say, we have a rod. And when the wolves come, we don't have coffee with them. 
Amen. Yeah. And part of, uh, part of, uh, leadership and part of headship is, is just taking that responsibility as well, right? Stepping in way, um, stepping in front of the shots being fired and saying, all right, I'm standing in front in order to protect my family, right? Or, or my congregation as well. So we're, you know, as a pastor, we are, um, going to take some hits and take some shots from people who are trying to fire at our church, but that's our job to step in and, and take those in order to protect our flock. I 100% agree. Yeah. I'd be curious, David, to get your thoughts. I don't know how much, have you had any interactions or any insights into uh, Calvin Theological Seminary? Because I would love your thoughts on the seminary, just as someone who's been a seminary president. Um, Do you have any thoughts on what's going on at the seminary or the job that they're doing there? Um. It is a universal phenomenon, if I can use that term. In other words, it's very common. You know, seminaries started out, uh, in, at least in in uh, uh, in our in the last century and this century, seminary started out wanting to be detached from the university because the university-based seminaries have become liberal, and so the seminary and the Bible Institute Bible school movement is to stay away from so-called secular academe. Now, Princeton, Harvard, these old schools, the seminaries are built into the university system. And then eventually they kind of become semi-autonomous because uh, the university have different priorities. But even in England, where I was educated, many of the uh, schools where you get your PhD, right, in uh, biblical studies or historical theology or Christian ethics. They are based inside universities. Now, what happens with Calvin and others like Western in uh, Michigan and the other Western in Portland and then Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, California, everywhere, is that eventually after neo-evangelicalism became a bit popular, that we begin to gravitate towards the universities again. And so we encourage our profs to go get their PhDs. And we do not really restrict them where they get their PhDs. So they can go anywhere as long as they come back with a recognized, a valid, not a Mickey Mouse PhD, you know, and then it will, you know, help the whole seminary ministry. It's also happening in Asia and elsewhere, especially with accreditation. So Mm -hmm. accreditation is a different set of rules, and you need to meet those rules, those requirements to be accredited. Everyone wants to get accredited. It's like a pin on your, you know, another star on your shoulder, you know. Mm -hmm. So as we do that, our people go to different places to get their PhDs, and they're exposed to different ideas. But some of them are not solidly grounded. So they waver. Mm -hmm. And then they go with the wind. Some are solidly grounded. They have to resist some. And it's possible to triumph. You can still get your PhD without losing your faith. It's possible. It's a bit Mm -hmm. difficult, but it's possible. I went through the same, you know, but I'm saying it's possible. It's not only me. Many of my friends did the same. So when these people come back to our seminary, they are already new creations. 
You're not the mm. person you sent out. Some p- people who got their PhD come back to seminary and teach an MDiv course, like a mini PhD. Mm. You don't do that. MDiv is pastoral training. It's not academic. PhD is academic. You do that to the THM students. You do that to the PhD students, but you don't teach an MDiv course like a mini PhD. It's Mm. not meant to be heavy academic. It's intended to be some academic and heavy pastoral practicality. You have to teach like that. Now, in my case, because of my many hats, I learned to shift gear. When I'm lecturing in the seminary, I just sit down. And then I speak very slowly like this. The Gospel of Matthew was composed by Matthew, the apostle, and his community. The Gospel of Matthew is, so I speak that slow. Why? Because they're taking notes. Mm -hmm. But when I'm preaching from my Sunday pulpit, I don't speak like that. I speak like Well, today we're looking at the Gospel of Matthew chapter 4. Can you open your Bible? The Lord Jesus Christ was tempted by the devil again and again and again. And guess what? He had the word of God in his heart. So I speak like that. Why? Mm -hmm. Because this is not a seminary audience who are taking notes, all of them. They are just taking notes of the main points. And I do not know the level of interest or motivation of all these listeners. It's a Sunday congregation. It's mixed. So I need to add a little drama, a little fluctuation in volume, a little gestures, a little movement to help them become attentive. It does not add to the message, but it helps people to focus better. That's all. But in the Mm -hmm. seminary classroom, I don't do that. There's not a lot of lectures. I very seldom draw things on the board, but sometimes I do because a diagram helps. In those days, we don't have PowerPoints and laptops. You know, We don't mm-hmm. have that. Uh, now today, when I lecture in a seminary, I bring a laptop and I have PowerPoint slides to show. So that saves me time writing in class time, but just showing it. Yeah. So I learned to adjust. So when I'm going to teach an MDiv course, I will teach it like an MDiv course. But we say come teach a course in the PhD program, like when I did a PhD course at Asia Graduate School of Theology. I have to teach it in an academic way because these people are there for the heavy academics. So you can't just have one set and then there's a continual. You need to have two sets. One is academic, one is pastoral. They can't put them together and says pastoral means lesser content but the same kind phd class means more content but the same kind so this is the unintended effect of sending our people to phd programs in germany in scotland at the university of chicago in harvard yale to get this very respectable phds when they come back Nobody reorient them to the yeah. MDiv atmosphere and the MDiv classroom. That has to be done. We cannot assume that everybody knows it. We used to assume that. And we have proven ourselves wrong again and again. Mm. 
So some of the ideas you see being floated around in Calvin seminary classrooms are an after effect of that. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I, that's not something I had fully thought of, but I think that's a, that's a good insight. Something we'll have to be thinking about as we look toward the future of the CRC, because I think we all realize uh, the future of the CRC and our health really depends heavily on the health of our seminary as well. The type of pastors we're putting out into our churches um, needs to be, um, they need to be good, solid pastors, right? And, uh, and if we're not turning out that type of pastor, then um, something needs to happen in the CRC. So um, one of the questions I'd love to hear from you, David, um, now that you've been in the Christian Reformed Church for a, for a number of years, what are some of the concerning things that you see happening um, in our denomination right now? Um, I think one of the first issues I encountered was the Belhar Confession. And so we spent uh, a long time in our classes debating that. And in the end, we have to go through three rounds of votes to finally send our delegates in 2012. Wow. And in the end, I, I, I was sent by, by our classes uh, to, to go to send, uh, Synod 2012. Were you there, Synod 2012? I wasn't. I was uh, actually not even in seminary quite yet. I started oh, yeah. <laughs> seminary in 2013. I'm still a young pup. Yeah. So in 2012, we arrived there and Belhar was the, the topic of the day. And so uh, there was a gentleman from uh, another part of Canada who stood up to speak. And he gave a very powerful appeal, starting basically, I can't remember whether he started with that line, but he highlighted that line is, what are you afraid of? Mm. Why can't you just approve it? What are you? So it's framed that way. And then there's some speech. So after he was done, the uh, advisory committee rep was so pleased with his presentation that he challenged the whole sentence as who among you can we respond to him? And nobody did. There's just, mm. just no way to respond to him. So I did it. You know why? Because he's not a white person. Mm. So none of my white friends dare respond because Belhar is about race. Yeah. Now there's this minority standing when says, why are you guys afraid? He didn't say who, but it's understood that most of you, right? If not yeah. all of you. So I, I responded to him and I mentioned him and says, yeah, you asked for a response. So I, gave, I basically dismantled his argument. Mm -hmm. Basically, because it, it's, he's not presenting profound arguments. It's more an emotional appeal. Yeah. So anyway, in the end, that time, I didn't pass. Uh, but I did not expect that five years afterwards, Belhar will come up again in 2017. And I was there again. That's what a coincidence. Yeah, At that yeah. time, 2017, I was not a delegate. I was invited as advisor. So mm -hmm. I cannot vote, but I can speak. You know, So I offered some speeches uh, as well. In 2017, Belhar was passed as a contemporary testimony, which we do not have to subscribe to. You only subscribe to it if you wish, but it's mm -hmm. already inside the filing cabinet. It's part of the CRC set of documents. So they got it in. I'm not sure whether somebody will pick it up again 
and then make it something else because the idea was to make it a confession like the RCA. So if you look at our denomination, a lot of the things that RCA has already done, we're trying to do. Now, you and I yeah. know that at the top level, there are some people who are sentimentally close to the RCA and wants to see us merge someday. Um, yes. So that, that's a sort of an end game thing. So we are doing many things, you know, and sometimes we're unclear why we're doing it. So in 2017, basically what we did was in order to, um, to protect our own statement on racism, we added three footnotes to the Belhar document. So the document that we have is a document from South Africa with our own footnotes. So one of the footnotes, uh, there are two footnotes which are problematic, but I'll just single out one. One footnote basically says that, well, Belhar here doesn't really mean racism. It doesn't really mean uh, homosexuality. It's just about racism that we need to accept all races, be kind to them, everybody's equal, and blah, 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 blah. But it doesn't apply to homosexuality. And that's to protect our statement on homosexuality from 1973. Mm -hmm. So that's the situation, okay? Now, afterwards, in our own classes here, I explain to them why the footnote is hermeneutical suicide. Synod committed hermeneutical suicide and did not even know it. Why? Because when we place in the footnote and says, it does not include homosexuality, guess what Alan Bosak, one of the authors of Belhar, who's not a white person, <laughs> said about the Belhar on its 25th anniversary. He said it includes LGBTQ people and women mm. and races and blah, 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 everything. So now our situation is this. We're saying that, well, that's him, but we're talking about the document. Well, he's the author. We're the commentator. So who do you believe? The Bible exegete? or Paul the Apostle. Hmm. What we have done is basically to say, Mr. Alan Bosak, we like what you say, but we don't want what you mean. Hmm. You cannot argue with the author. If he's a fellow commentator, it's even playing field. He's one of the authors, and he's one of the key authors. That's why you see all the liberation theology tones in there. Because this guy is a liberation theologian from South Africa. And I presented that excerpt, not just one paragraph, a few paragraphs so they see the context. So I said, how can Synod miss that? I mean, we have a many scholars, right? And all these Calvin Seminary experts are there, right? You know what's the problem, Jason? The problem is that when they look at the document right away, they think systematic theology. So the experts from Calvin they brought in are systematic theologians, but not biblical hermeneutics experts. Now, my two areas are biblical studies and church history, a church mission history. So I deal with issues like this. You cannot deny the meaning of the author and says, no, we just want what you say, but not what you mean. What kind of hermeneutics is that? Yeah. As long as you maintain that, 
anyone in the world can say anything they want, regardless of what Paul said. You wow. say Paul yeah, said true. that, but he doesn't really mean that. So once you commit theology, uh, hermeneutical suicide, your theology is gone because the foundation is gone. You can have the same Bible, but now it's read a different hundred different ways. And this is what is happening with regards to the LGBTQ issue. It's a hermeneutical issue. None of them says we hate the Bible. We hate Paul. None of them says that. They all says we love Paul. We love the Bible. We love Moses. We love Leviticus. We love everybody. But this is actually what they meant. Mm -hmm. And we're saying that, no, no, no. Hermeneutics is a science. It's not art. That you can paint this scene red or blue or yellow, depending on the mood of the artist. No. Hermeneutics is a science. There are correct and wrong answers. So let's debate that. And once we can establish that, we can get somewhere. Because I do not see how they can support their current hermeneutical situation. But as long as we have something like Belhar in here, this is a hidden time bomb. Yeah. So yeah. nobody mentioned that. Not in banner, not in any conversation. They all deal with it theologically. But there's a human hermeneutical cemetery in there. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And I think that's been kind of uh, this bad leaven that's been growing in the CRC for a very long time. And so we're just seeing the fruit of that work out in the Belhar and now, and now in this uh, human sexuality report too. I mean, as I'm, as I'm listening to people respond to the, the, to the um, human sexuality report. So just this last week, um, all one body started releasing all of these videos responding to the human sexuality report, trying to, trying to encourage people not to adopt it on all of these different grounds. But um, you're right. One of the videos I watched was a guy, he started off saying, um, I love the Bible. I love this book. It is such a powerful and great book. And then he started off that way and then went on basically to explain why it really doesn't say anything. <laughs> it, you know, we, we can't really use it as a guide for life. Or he said, it's not a rule book. And, you know, he just kind of went on and dismantled the whole thing. So it's like, I love this book that really doesn't say anything. And I thought, oh man, that's sad. And that, it just points to the, what the point that you were just making is that we, we've kind of lost our hermeneutic where uh, the Bible can kind of say anything, or we can hold two contrary positions next side to side by side and be okay with that. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and we have a hard time uh, coming down on uh, and, and making a decision regarding uh, certain issues. And um, I know there's a number of people wanting to see that happen with the human sexuality report, that we can make another decision where we say, well, both sides are kind of right, or both sides can be come to from scripture. And yet, like you said, that to, to make that decision is a hermeneutical suicide. Yeah, you're, and you use a very good word there, living, that it's not something that comes out as bread in, in a second, right? But yeah. it grows, and then it, it defiles the whole Dao, yeah. Yeah, I think at the present time, we need to recognize that the debate with our leftist friends <laughs> is, is not biblical authority, it's hermeneutics. And number two, that the whole engagement is not rational. 
it's irrational. If you remember our prof, uh, former Calvin uh, teacher, great philosopher, um, Les Walter Star, yeah, confessed that it all started because a member of the family is LG. Mm-hmm. And so he has to look at the whole thing again. And mm-hmm. if you remember our other friend, um, Lee, I forgot his name. It's Len. Len's Len Vanderzee. Len Vanderzee. Van he said the same. He has said the exact Len's same author, thing. Right? Yep. So these people did not start out from the research table. They start out with relations, which is not rational. It's irrational. I'm using irrational in the philosophical sense of the word. Yeah. As you know, there's a tradition of irrationalism, but not in the sense of, you know, you, you go crazy. So this is, we're dealing with sentimentalism. You cannot argue that. Because she's my granddaughter. What can you do? She's not your granddaughter, but one day if it's your son, maybe you will be like me. So this is not a rational conversation. Uh, some people who struggle, uh, rational arguments can help. But people who are already enclosed within their sentimental bubble, you can speak all the rational things in the world, but it, it, it will not get in that bubble. So we need to recognize that. In other words, if there is a big chunk of people in that sentimental bubble who does not appeal to reason anymore, eventually it comes down to a political decision. Votes cast at a synod. Now, in our strategy group, uh, the Abide Strategy Group, uh, we thought we should review what Synod has done in the last 20 years and see whether there are precedents to what we can do at the next Synod. Nobody wants to do that. That's a lot of work. So I said, okay, I'll do two years. Each of us take two years, then we cover 10 years. Yeah. To make the long story short, next time we met again, nobody covered anything but I covered 21 years. I just do everything. <laughs> That's the church historian. In yeah. So I look at the 2003 case where the whole thing did not start out as something from the classes, but eventually Senate appointed an in-local committee to deal with it. And then I look at the other case, a parallel case, and then others. And then eventually we came out with a, with a strategy on how we can move things towards uh, a conservative atmosphere for the CRC. Mm -hmm. And uh, it has to happen on Senate floor. Because I think the uh, people in charge of Senate already expressed that, you know, you guys can stop sending overtures because we have enough. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You're just repeating (laughs) what everybody else is saying. So don't send. So I think that in that zone, we're covered. Yeah. yeah. But then when it comes to Senate floor, where there's deliberation, it's an open field. And again, uh, we, we need to be aware that some of these people are operating sentimentally, not rationally. Mm-hmm. But they may have the PhD credentials and everything, but they're not operating like that. It just looks like that. So the flimsiest argument is good enough because I already know the conclusion. Mm-hmm. Wow. 
Yeah, I think you're I think you're right on. What what would you say, David? We've got a number of pastors who listen to this podcast and then a number of uh um a number of lay people who are concerned about the future of the Christian Reformed Church. What advice would you give them in in how um in helping our our denomination move in a conservative direction? Yeah. I think we need to call on resources outside ourselves. We need to pray a lot. Amen. Because God can do things we cannot imagine. And God can change the hearts of kings without us speaking a word. The Holy Spirit can speak to those who belong to him. So we need to call on resources from above. It's the Lord's church. We're part of it. Our LG friends, our LGBTQ friends, LG abbreviation, LG friends are part of it. They may be uh, swayed a certain way, uh, maybe sentimentally, maybe because they are not equipped to deal with serious exegesis. So when somebody with a PhD says, oh, that's what it means too, you know, then they, they get sold to that. Uh, we need to pray that the Lord work in our hearts and also the hearts of our LG friends and their supporters. We need to especially pray for people by name. Mm. Yeah. People who are influential voices like uh, Walter Storm, like Len Vanderzee and others. We need to pray for Banner, which is supposed to be a family magazine. But um, I still, uh, you know, I was puzzled for a long time. Why for the last 20 years, the banners editor is always from the left? Why is that? Finally, I met a gentleman who's been with the CRC like forever and he has retired, <laughs> but he's still, you know, involved in some of CRC activities. So I asked him why. And he says, because the people who appoint are all on the left. Have you heard yep. about John? What's his John Sook? Yeah. Yeah. He was editor for more than 10 years and he was influencing a lot of things. Mm -hmm. But eventually he left and joined the uh, United Church, which is a liberal church. Right? Yeah. So, but, but how come, you know, does, didn't anybody notice anything? I mean, who, who's pastoring him? Who, who's his peer pastor? or his church pastor, you know. So it's a bit worrisome. Uh, so uh, this is another area. So I excited Belhar because that was my entry surprise. Yeah. <laughs> and then eventually we have the uh, HSR, Human Sexuality uh, Report. And at the present time, I think there are a number of issues that we're dealing with and we're trying to think of ways to address them and hopefully to overcome them. Um, this is the battle of the day, but there will be another battle when this one is over, regardless of who wins. As long as the foundations are not right, you will always have battles. Uh, one of the things I have to adjust to is when I do ministry here in Richmond, I don't highlight the word reform. I highlight the word Christian because what they need is Christ, not the Reformed Church. 
Why do we start at the 16th century? Why can't we start in the first century? Christian. You see, when I deal with my friends here, many of them are atheists. If you say reform, they don't know what that means. Reform is an in-house battle. We fight the Catholics, the Lutherans, and so forth. It's in-house. But when you go out and meet the world, it's not an in-house battle. You convert people to Christianity, not to reformed thought. Because Christianity is rich enough. And when we say reform, we actually mean Christian. But for my target of evangelism, I cannot use reform. Because they're not Christians. They're not from the 16th century. They don't have the 400 year of church history in their head and say, oh, you're reformed because it's Lutheran, right? Because it's Baptist, right? No, they just say, why should I believe in Jesus? Why is he the only savior? So I highlight Christian. That's foundation. See, when you highlight reform, you will highlight the confessions. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just that that's not solid enough. I would rather my people here at church memorize the Bible than the Heidelberg Catechism. Amen. Heidelberg is based on the Bible. But once you get them to memorize that, they regard that as the authority, not the commentary. And you can't mislead them that way. No, you memorize the Bible. You read the Bible all the time. We need to know what battle we're engaging or what missionary situation we're engaging. When I'm dealing with people from China, they're all atheists. I don't say reform. I say Christian. I don't say Kuiper. I say Christ. Because they need Christ. Even if they don't know Abraham Kuiper, it's okay. As long as they know Jesus Christ. That's all we have for this week. Stay tuned next week for our conversation with Matt Ford. Until then, don't forget this is Christ's church. And he bought it with his blood. And we've been warned that wolves will come in trying to destroy the flock. So keep a close watch on your life and on your doctrine. Preach the word in season and out of season. And keep fighting the good fight in this messy reformation.